something real or what? Isn't it great to know that not only are we able to do something that touches Center Township school kids and Butler, but what God's doing around the world. If you come to Community Alliance Church, you're not just a part of what God is doing at Community Alliance Church. You're part of what God is doing in the Christian Missionary Alliance around the world. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't change that for trade that for anything in the world. That we have the opportunity to do what we do this morning and know that halfway around the world, it's being impacted by our partnership with them. So I really have felt like over this next year or so, we want to do a better job of helping you be aware of what God's doing around the world. And so as Dave said, every six, four, six weeks, we're going to share one of those. One quick announcement that I forgot to do. Tonight I'm teaching a seminar for anybody who's engaged, serious relationship, uh, wanting to explore to find out what it's all about, to have a relationship that lasts for a lifetime. And right now we've got 36 signed up for that. We had 20 last week and 30 yesterday and now 36 today. So uh, if you're coming to that and it's still not too late, you can sign up right after the service today. But if you're coming to, to tonight, look for signs because now we're not sure we're going to relocate it and make sure we have enough room for anybody. But I'd love to have you there for that. Now, I know you're looking around this morning, and I also know you can't see very well from where you are. A number of years ago, I made a decision that I felt much more comfortable down here than up on the stage, so I've been here ever since. And some of the visuals are a little hard to see. We wanted to make sure there was enough room up here for that. So when you look at a treadmill and an EKG machine and a stethoscope and a chocolate Easter bunny, you're trying to figure out how do they all tie in, right? I mean, I can figure three out of the four. I'm not sure where the bunny fits. Well, if you stay with me this morning, I'll tell you that. Hope you have an imagination because I'd love to imagine for a little bit. Let's suppose, I hope all of you are believers in Christ, but let's suppose you're not yet, but you're very curious about Jesus. So you want to take some time to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and find out what is it about this guy that drew people to him and then when they came, what was he looking for? I mean, if I'm really honest, there's some confusing things that Jesus did in his response to people different than I maybe would have and different than a certain lot of other people were. So what was it that he was looking for? Now, let's suppose even further, you got to go there. So you're in Jerusalem, you're in Galilee somewhere, and you're watching this guy. And you're kind of looking on the sidelines to analyze what is it that he sees and you have a lot of questions that come to your mind after you watch his interaction with people. You follow them to the lady at the well. John chapter 4 is a story of that. And you know her. You know she's a mess. She says she's in her fourth relationship, but she's in her fifth. She seems to be looking for love in all the wrong places. And You've been to church enough to know that here is a guy who claims to be the son of God, so i got to believe he's certainly going to point out some stuff in her life and get her on the track again and, and try to help her recognize what a mess she's made of her life. And so she comes up to get some water, and Jesus is there and asks her for some, and there's an interaction that goes on between him and her, and instead of condemnation... You see, love and grace. You go, wait a minute, I know her life. I know her third husband. I know the guy she's with now. This is the son of God? And he's showing her grace and love? I don't know if I fully understand. What's he see that I don't see? In a world that drew lines between 
culture and class and between men and women and Jew and Samaritan, Jesus shows her the way without pushing her away and actually draws her in. And if you remember that line, you'll remember a lot of what I'm about to say this morning. That Jesus drew her in instead of pushing her away. And he showed her the way instead of pushing her away. Because there's a lot of churches and religious people that would have pushed her away. Jesus drew her in. You follow him to the temple. Everybody's given their offering. The plates are being passed. In their context, they weren't any plates. They kind of dropped them off on the way in, a little box somewhere. And you saw a little lady walk up and put in what you and I would know as a half a penny. And you hear him say, guys, I want you to see that because she gave more than anybody else in the room. And you're going, wait a minute, I know the guy can do math. So what does he see that I don't see? You already heard him come in contact with a rich young ruler, and he told him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What's he looking for? You follow him for a while out into the streets, and they drag a woman out caught in adultery. And in a world that drew line between public sins and private sins, I hear Jesus offering her love and forgiveness. And then he looks at the guys who dragged her out, who were about to stone her to death and say, let the one who hasn't sinned cast the first stone. And they walk away. And again, he offers her grace and love and forgiveness. I know he can't tolerate sin. I've already heard him say that. And yet here's one of the most sinful acts we know, one of the most sinful situations that I've seen in a while, and yet he's offering her love and grace and forgiveness. Direction, don't do this again, but grace. What's the issue? What's he looking for? You hear him over and over again blasting the religious leaders of his day, and you think if anyone would know about God and anyone would want people to find God, it would be them, yet he's harder on religious people than anyone else. I was there in Matthew 21. I saw him walk into that temple and throw the place upside down. And that's not the same Jesus that Denny talked about last Sunday morning who was gracious and compassionate, who said, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm humble and gentle and tender. I saw that side of Jesus that turned that place upside down. I thought, how do those two go together? I read a little bit more of the story, and then I heard him say, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. I thought, what does that mean? And what was fascinating about that, the religious people who were there in that particular context were running the other way, and after he cleared the place out of all their religiosity, everybody who was crippled and blind and lame came running to him and found what he had to offer. In Matthew 23, when he's talking to the same people, he again addresses that issue and said, I'm telling you, what you're doing is shutting the kingdom of heaven in the faces of men who are searching for answers. For years, we've looked at that section of Scripture, and we kind of wondered what he meant. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, and most churches stop on my house shall be a house of prayer. And so we say the one thing we should be doing in church is praying. Obviously, it is. Please don't misinterpret that. 
But we stop there and we forget that Mark's the only one that repeats what Isaiah said when he said, my house shall be a house of prayer for everyone, for all nations. Everybody is welcome. Everybody comes in. And what you're doing by all your religiosity and those booths where you say they're not accepted to us or they're not acceptable to us or they can't come in until they come through us, you're shutting the kingdom of heaven right in the very face of the people who are looking for it. Imagine in your eye, mind's eye, that you see a lady standing at a kitchen looking at her life and recognize that it's pretty much falling apart. She doesn't know where to go and doesn't know where to turn. Things hadn't gone the way she had anticipated and her life certainly isn't going well. She's wrestling with life and answers and children and family and relationships and she's desperate to know the truth. And somewhere in the back of her mind, she remembers that a grandmother took her to church one day. And she thought, maybe that's where I'll find the answers. And so she picks a church and she goes. And she walks in and she realizes, I don't fit here. They're all too perfect. They all look great. And the other thing about them is they don't look like they're enjoying it. I mean, they're going through the rituals. They sing a few songs. No life, no energy. And she walks out, never finding what she was looking for. That would be the same kind of church that Jesus would walk into and say, you shut the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in the very face of the people who are desperately looking for answers. So at church... Still sang songs, took an offering. What's he looking for? You see him send out his disciples. He gives them power to preach in his name, cast out demons, and to heal. And then you hear him in Matthew chapter 7 say, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, who preaches and casts out demons and performs miracles will enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going, what are you talking about? What are you looking for? What do you mean when you send them out to preach in your name, cast out demons, and now you say, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, prophesies in my name, cast out demons, perform miracles, will enter the kingdom of heaven? What are you looking for? What's the main issue with you, Jesus? And the answer is in your sermon notes this morning. And it's in the title of the sermon. It's a matter of the heart. It has been, always will be, all the way through Matthew, all the way through Mark, all the way through John, all the way through Luke. It's always and always will be a matter of the heart. Jesus walks into history affirming what his father said in the Old Testament to David in Psalm 15 when he said, who can come to church? Who can go into your tabernacle? God said, one with a clean hand and pure heart. And we all look at ourselves saying, I better leave now. Who can come into your temple? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus confirms what God said to King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16. The eyes of the Lord range all through the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So when God looks at our heart, when God looks at my heart, when God looks at your heart, what does he see? Because as sure as I'm standing here, he sees it. One of the scariest things about Jesus is that he sees everything that no one else sees because he sees deep inside our soul, and more importantly, he sees our heart. So when God looks at your heart, what does he see? You look out the window on a Monday morning, and you see a guy standing on the walk in front of your house, and all of a sudden he clutches his heart and he goes down. The ambulance pulls up, three EMTs jump out. What do they do? Straighten out his tie, comb his hair, 
course not. No time for what's on the outside. They go right for the heart. And what's fascinating about God is so does he. That's where he meets us and evaluates us. It's where the intimate, life-changing relationship takes place. Atrophy is a medical term, which is what happens when an organ becomes useless due to disease or lack of use. It can also happen in the spiritual realm just like it can in the physical realm. And many times it can strike the heart. If your heart, if my heart is not nourished and developed, they can become cold to Christ and spiritually dysfunctional, leaving us with a Christianity that is hollow and habitual, a spiritual experience that was once so exciting and so fun that was supposed to be filled with so much incredible joy becomes no more than a way of life, something I do on Sunday simply because it's Sunday. When the Statue of Liberty is being refurbished, She's got to rely on 300,000 feet of scaffolding to support her. She's hollow on the inside and can't maintain herself. And if you draw the parallel, you also realize that there are a lot of people, followers of God, and many times even Christians, who rely on a whole lot of scaffolding built around them. They count more on pastors and youth sponsors and parents and friends to maintain us. Books and praise music and articles and traditions of all kind running around the scaffolding, running to the next event possible to keep them mended, polished, and pure. And nothing wrong with any of those things. Hopefully you've got friends and pastors and parents. Hopefully you read books and listen to praise music and articles and you've got a lot of things going on and you do to go to a number of events. But I, in all of my life, I've watched people run from event to event, from book to book, the greatest thing, the latest thing, the next thing, just so that they can keep their insides going somehow, but there's not enough inside to keep them going. And all of a sudden, they begin to find themselves collapsing on the inside as well as on the outside. And if we're not careful, depending on all of those things from the outside and nothing going on on the inside... We become nothing more than like that chocolate Easter bunny that looks really good and sweet on the outside, but inside it's hollow and fragile, and you push on it too hard, and it collapses and crumbles. It's an Easter chocolate bunny. It's not like I killed a real bunny. And if you're honest... You remember those times in your life when what you had in the inside didn't match the pressure going on in the outside and you imploded and you didn't get through it. And I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, if your insides aren't as strong as they need to be to handle the pressure on the outside, you end up like that in broken pieces all over the floor and not able to get put back together again. When I was in college, my first or second year, my dad and I both have a discussion as to exactly when that was, but he was somewhere in his 40s. I got a call from my mom saying, your dad's in intensive care, and they don't know if he's going to make it. He had a coronary thrombosis, which is a blockage of the coronary artery. On the outside, this man was as strong as an ox. I mean, he's in his 80s now, late 80s now, and he still reminds me every once in a while, I can take you if you, don't mess, up, if you mess up. And I believe he could. But I was certain in his 40s he could take me and break me in half if he wanted to. His 50s and his 60s and his 70s as well. But there was something going on inside. And that man who on the outside was as strong as an ox and looked as tough as you can possibly imagine had something going on on the inside to an extent that it put him on his back for two months and almost changed his life. And at that point, when I'm coming home from college, making a decision, do I stay as a farmer for the rest of my life or continue in ministry, could have at that moment changed my life as well. 
looked good on the outside, but inside was taking its toll. There are a number of instruments that doctors use to check someone's heart. There's a stethoscope that they listen to your heart and they try to decide whether there's any murmurs or unusual sounds. There's that EKG machine that a place let me borrow this week and next Sunday as well. And, and it, it talks about all the electronics going on in your heart. A few years ago at Easter weekend when I was in the hospital in intensive care, they said your plumbing's good but your electronics are really messed up. And so they watched that, and they looked at that, and did everything that was necessary to be able to correct that. And then, of course, there's that EKG on a treadmill. And they get it going as fast as they can get it going and as high as they can possibly make it. And they ask you, who's not run a lick in the last 20 years, to run as fast as you can to see if you can make it. And then they wonder why you failed the stress test. You ever wonder that? Shortly after I got here, things the pressure was overwhelming. I hadn't anticipated and was prepared for all the growth and all the stuff that was happening all at the same time. And all of a sudden, I recognized that this little finger on this hand was going numb. And, of course, that's the first sign of a heart attack, right? The left hand's going numb. I must be having a heart attack. So I called a friend who got me to a doctor, and he said, you got to have a stress test. So the lady hooked me up, was running it pretty fast, hooked me up to an EKG machine. And she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor at Community Alliance Church. She said, why are you here? I said, I feel like I'm facing an enormous amount of pressure and I don't know what to do with it. Demands are overwhelming, people's needs and circumstance. I don't know how to handle it all. And I went through all these things as, as I was trying to just to tell her what I was feeling on the inside to make sure there was nothing wrong with the heart. And so she said, well, we're going to find out today. So she had to run pretty fast and all those electrodes hooked up to me. And then she said, while you're standing there running, can I just tell you what's going on in my life? And she began to unload all of her story and all of her stuff, knowing that I was a pastor who would listen. And I wanted, finally, I said to her, ma'am, do you know why I'm here? I may reach the ultimate limit today and die right in your office. Medical professionals know what a strong heart looks like. And they take all the readouts and everything necessary so that they can find out what it really should be and what it really is. Jesus also knows the kind of heart he's looking for. In your sermon notes, I had this statement, real authentic Christianity is always and has been a matter of the heart. The word heart used in Scripture is the most comprehensive form or term for the real person. It's a part of our being where we desire and deliberate and decide. It's where my feelings and my passions and my thoughts and my understanding and my will are. It's who I really am deep down inside. A heart toward God produces joy, spontaneity, stability, and strength. You see, we're much more concerned in your sermon notes about lifestyle when God all along has been concerned about heart style. Jesus was way more concerned with character than behavior because he knew that right behavior would follow right character. He knew that if your heart was right, your actions would follow it. That's why when he was asked to wrap up the entire Old Testament in two commandments, he said, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And out of that will come a love for your neighbors yourself. Now, when it's quoted in the Gospels, it's just simply two statements together. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. But John, who was there that day, backs up in the whole first chapter, first few books of the Gospel of 1 John says, remember when Jesus said, doesn't say it that way, but he said, Jesus said, love me with everything you've got. And when you do, you'll love people. But if you don't love people, I've got to be honest with you, you don't love God because they go together. 
So when Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he knew that if we were able to do that, there would be a natural outflow to the people around us. And if there wasn't a natural outflow to the people around us, maybe, just maybe, our hearts weren't fully committed and connected to him. So what I want to do this morning and next Sunday morning is kind of hook you up to a biblical EKG machine. We're going to take some of these probes and we're going to go through the Word of God and we're going to hook you up to the Word of God and see how we do in a spiritual EKG. Because to be honest with you, when we really look at the inside and see what Christ looks for, we'll be able to better determine how well our hearts are moving with Him. So what are some of the things that reveal the true nature of my heart? Number one, response to the stresses of life. Response to the stresses of life. In Matthew chapter 6, it's not in your notes, so you can jot that down, verses 24 to 25 to 34. He's in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, hey, you guys are really uptight about the wrong things. How many of you worried about this? You're worried about that? You can't add a day to your life by worry. I mean, let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus was the master illustrator. We talk about illustrations. Jesus was the master illustrator. He said, look around you. I mean, there's birds flying everywhere. Do you think they're really worried about where they're going to eat tomorrow? They know God's going to provide, and they find it, and they get it, and they continue on. Look at the fields. You think that flower is worried about when it's going to bloom and how long it's going to last and when it's going to die off? I mean, Solomon and all of his splendor can't even compare with the beauty of what you see around you. Why are you worried about the wrong things? Why are you letting all the stress and anxiety of life push on you so hard and not enough on the inside? I want to tell you, you're going to fall apart. And one of the best indicators as to whether or not you're running on so much outside stuff and not enough inside stuff is how you handle the pressures of life. I think it was yesterday morning, Fox News had a fascinating piece on where a guy was coming in and talking about uh, unplugging. You know, we know how all the cell phones and all this kind of a stuff. Found out that losing, how did he say it? Losing my smartphone was almost as stressful to me as a terroristic threat. In all of their research, losing your smartphone was right next to my fear of terror attacks. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit odd, right? A little bit misaligned. Now, I know what it's like. I, I, where's mine? Oh, yeah. Okay, make sure it's there. <laughs> we're getting ready to leave the DR. Last day there, we're done. And, and I, we're, I would take a picture with the iPads because I, I can't, I'm, my eyes are bad enough and I can't see the smartphone. So I open up to an iPad and I can see the pictures and I'm taking them. Walking out. We're not coming back again. We have no idea what's going on. I can't find my phone. A little bit of a panic. So I'll be honest, I get it. When I look at some of the things in life that fire us up and shake us up and wire us up and that we explode on, because you're either going to implode or explode. If the inside doesn't match the outside, you're going to either implode or explode and yell at everybody. About some of the dumbest things in life, which is, goes back to the old don't cry over spilled milk. Remember why? Because it's spilled milk. It's a dumb chocolate Easter bunny. <laughs> but we get uptight about some of the wrong things. Number two is the depth of my commitment. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, he said this. It's a powerful statement. If you deny me before men, I'll disown you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll disown you.
before my Father in heaven. And I thought, whoa. When we get to heaven, Jesus is going to be there introducing you to God. Jesus, this is Heather. Sweetest thing on a planet. One of the greatest girls you've ever met. Loves people, loves God, loves her husband, loves her kids. She's a really great girl. I want to introduce her to you, but she's not here because she's a really great girl. She is. Good mom, good wife. But she's here as I introduce her to you because she accepted you as Savior. And she knew who I was and knew what I came to do, and she accepted me as the Savior of her life, and she committed her life to, to me and to you. And so now I have the privilege of being able to introduce Heather to you, Father. That's what the future is going to look like. And then Jesus makes this statement, if you deny me before men, I'll disown you before my Father in heaven. An Old Testament example is out of 2 Chronicles 16. It's in your verse there this morning. It's the story of King Asa's last days when his loyalty to God is being tested. A prophet, Hanai, disapproved of his actions because he was disloyal by striking an allegiance with a pagan king named Ben-Hadad. Israel had attacked Judah, and now the king of Judah is surrounded and overpowered. has two options. Remain loyal to God and trust him for deliverance. After all, their history is filled with stories of how God helped him through overwhelming odds, which is one of the reasons he kept saying over and over again, I'm so afraid when you get successful, you forget what I've done. So this is what I want you to do. Every time you have an opportunity, tell your kids what God has done. Every time you have a chance, remember what I have accomplished. Because there's going to come a day when you're overwhelmed with odds and overwhelmed with circumstances, and you may forget that I've delivered you in all of those. So constantly be reminded of that. Tell your kids, tell your grandchildren of what I have done. Unfortunately, Ben-Hadad didn't believe all of that, and so he took money from the temple treasury, which means that God's people would now be aligned with a godless nation. Instead of, in essence, trusting God to protect them, they would have to rely on their own resources. And sadly enough, Asa chose the wrong option. Our hearts will always show themselves when life puts us in a bind. Our hearts will always show themselves when life puts us in a bind. Somebody comes to you this week and says, so what would you do this weekend? Went to church. You what? Went to church. What would you do this weekend? I went to church. I had a ball. I love for you to come. You go to church? Why? And then you explain it. You tell them. Tell them what God's doing in your life. You tell them. I'm, I'm, as honest as I know how to stand here this morning, your Christianity and mine is going to be more and more tested over the next couple of decades than you could have ever imagined in a lifetime. You're going to feel like Daniel in the lion's den. I know his middle name, Daniel. You're going to feel like Daniel in the lion's den on a regular basis over the next century. Over the, I'm sorry, over the next decade. More than probably the last six decades combined. What about at work? Stories being told, one that you know is certainly off color and doesn't need to be shared, certainly doesn't need to be listened to. What do you do? In the context of that, what do you do when everybody said, hey, let's go out for the weekend. Let's just go out and away home tonight. And everybody in that party or everybody in that event starts to drink one after the other after the other. What do you do? How do you take your stand? Do you condemn them or do you just simply say, you know what, not for me. And then you tell them why. Not in a condemning way, but in a loving way. The story of Daniel and 
His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing firm in their convictions in, in Babylon. One of the greatest stories in all the Old Testament of how three, four young guys fully flat out committed to God in the midst of the most horrific circumstances that you can possibly imagine that remained faithful at every single turn because they had early made a decision to remain faithful to Christ no matter what. I had a kid send me an email this week saying, I've got to interview my pastor for a class that I'm taking at college. I'm being in, going into ministry. What he had a lot of questions, but one of the questions, what, what advice would you give? To a young guy going into ministry or a young guy preparing for ministry, <laughs> one of the things I wrote down is don't make decisions now that will haunt you later. Don't make decisions now or do things now that are going to bite you later down in ministry. Make wise choices. Stay in the Word. Stay connected to God. Grow your heart. Make sure it's connected with Jesus. Do we stand up for Christ no matter what the cost or do we give in just to get along? Or do we stay firm to our conviction no matter what because in the midst of that our real heart will show. What about priority lists in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Everything else will line up underneath that. It's the end of the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the context of worry. When he said, look, I just want to ask you a question. What do your priorities lists look like? What's really important to you? Am I at the top or do you have to fit me into your schedule? Do you feel like you've got to squeeze God into your schedule or do you fit into his? Do you encourage your children towards school events and good financial careers or toward youth group and ministry and church and growing in Christ? They're watching you and I to find out what's really important. Whether they tell you or not, they're watching you and I to find out what's really important. Well, I can't make them go to church. Sure you can. You're still the parent. But the issue isn't to drive them, it's to lead them. Now, you're going to drive them, I get that. But the issue isn't to drive them, it's to lead them. They're looking for what really is important in life. They're looking to how to realign their own priorities. They're trying to figure out what's really important in life. Have all kinds of things coming at them, all kinds of voices into their ears. They're trying to figure out what's really important. So when they look at you and I, what do they see? Do they see that Jesus does make a difference, that he can help you with all these things if you put him first? He really does line up everything underneath that. Do they see your passion for Christ? Do they really know that they're more important than your career and your pursuit of happiness? Your heart is always showing continually how you prioritize your life. Is he first or not? Fourth way that I'll talk about this morning is what we do with our resources. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. I'm pretty sure it's in your notes. Where Jesus said, look, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, their heart will be also. Not saying don't go to the bank. He's not saying don't have a bank account. Not what he's saying at all. He says you've got to be really fully aware of what you're investing the majority of your time, your talents, and your treasures in. Because I just want you to know right now, what those are and what they look like and what you see is important and how you prioritize all of those things, I'm telling you now, as sure as I'm standing here, your heart will be attached to what you say is the most important. So if your pursuit of toys and the, most, the guy with the most toys wins, if it's all those other things in life, I just need you to know, your heart's going to go that direction. But if it's toward me, if you seek me first, I'll take care of all the other things. But I'm telling you, when I look at what's really, what you're doing with your time, your talent, your treasures, I'll know where your heart is because it will always, always 
What you invest your time, your talent, and your treasures in will demand the majority of your heart's attention. If you search through Scripture, you'll find that Jesus talked four times more about resources than he did about faith and prayer. Because he knew that our heart's attention would be drawn toward what we saw as most important in our life, especially regarding our resources. So how are we doing in those areas? Every time I do a funeral, and I've done hundreds of them, I remind them of how valuable life is. And you have no guarantee as to how long you'll have it. Scripture in Moses' words in, in Psalm 90 says, you know, 70, 80 maybe. I just need you to know when it gets to be 80 or beyond that, it's a lot of strength, labor, and sorrow. And those of us who are continuing to accumulate the years know that it takes you way more. I, I still haven't recovered from man camp. And it was a week and a half ago. But we never have any guarantee. So I say to people, the two of the most important decisions in your life that you'll ever make is what you do with Jesus. Because I know they've heard sermons like so-and-so went to that grand reunion in the sky and he went fishing in the sky and he went on that great hunting field. And I want to make sure that whatever they've heard and any sermon they've ever heard at a funeral, that they know the absolute only way to heaven is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not at some reunion in the sky, not that great hunting field in the sky or that fishing hole. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way to heaven is through Jesus. I always want to make sure they understand that. And secondly, you've been given a gift. It's called life. What are you doing with it? Because I've been around long enough to know there's no guarantee. You may have 20 years. You may have 30 years. You may have 60 years. You may have 90 years. My dad says he's living to 100. I said, why? <laughs> Neighbor lived to 100. I said, it's not a contest. <laughs> when I know what's on the other side, why would I want to stay here? But none of us have any guarantees. So what are you doing with this gift called life? Now, I'm not saying you live your life saying, I hit 20 finally. I hope I get 21. So what am I going to do for the rest? And then worry about it because we already talked about that. I'm just saying you don't have a guarantee. So use it wisely and use it well. It's been entrusted into your care and my care. And what I do with my time, my talent, and my resources. Do I get the woman who dropped in a penny said, look, it's not about the amount. The others all gave out of excess. She gave out a sacrifice. So what am I doing with what I've been given? Because it will always show. Does he get what's left over or does he get what's first? And everything else comes under that. Next week, the rest. The scariest one is how we'll start next week when it's our thought life. Because he can read our minds. And I can read yours saying, you should be done. I just filled in that last blank. Let me go home. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, all of these indicators, all the nine that I'll share with you and all that you'll see in the Word of God are really good indicators of whether or not my heart's in good relationship with Him. Because I'm telling you, you look awesome on the outside. What He looks at is the inside. So how's your heart? God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the analogies you use. You are the master illustrator. And I thank you for that, and I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you will continue to help us in these weeks together as we journey with you toward the cross and beyond, that we'll hear you speaking to us loud and clear over all of the other things that clamor for our attention. May we hear you and respond to that. I thank you for the fact that you didn't leave us alone trying to figure out how to live this life, but you gave us guidance and direction and models in the Word to help us do everything we can to have a heart that is connected and moving toward you. 
We want a heart after God. May that be said of us as we pursue that in this journey together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for your kind attention. God bless you. Have an amazing day. If I can pray for you in any way, if you're coming tonight, look for signs when you come in here. Still want to come? Sign up.